Welcome to Sounds Like History. In this episode, Nancy Payne, editor of Kayak, Canada's history magazine for kids, speaks with Joseph Trivers, music acquisitions librarian at Library and Archives Canada, about a song that, at one time, served as Canada's unofficial national anthem, and a song from a Norwegian play sung by a celebrated Canadian soprano. It's 2017, and Canadians are getting ready to celebrate our country's 150th anniversary. The song we're exploring in this podcast, The Maple Leaf Forever, was also written in 1867. So do we have the 150th anniversaries of each to thank for our exploration of this song? It's more of a happy coincidence, I think. In the previous round of podcasts we did, I talked about the French-Canadian folk song Vive la Canadienne, as performed by the Alouette Quartet. I made reference to a newspaper article from the Ottawa Citizen discussing reasonable substitutes for our national anthem, O Canada. The author contended that there were two songs that unofficially served our patriotic desires and which were embraced by our two main linguistic communities. It was argued that Vive la Canadienne was more popular amongst French Canadians and that the Maple Leaf Forever was more popular amongst English Canadians. In fact, The song was so popular with English Canadians at the time that it served somewhat as an unofficial anthem. What were the circumstances that led to the song's composition? Lyrics and music were written by Alexander Muir, a schoolteacher, poet, and songwriter. Muir was born in Scotland in 1830, but immigrated to Canada with his family in 1833, growing up in Scarborough Township, just east of Toronto. He graduated from Queen's College in Kingston, Ontario in 1851, and upon graduation, embarked on a career as a teacher in Scarborough, Leslieville, and Yorkville. He was Canadian, but also very proud of his British background, and this pride is definitely present in the lyrics of the Maple Leaf Forever. The genesis of the initial poem came about during the time Muir was principal of a school in Leslieville. Muir wanted to submit an entry into a patriotic poetry contest of the Caledonian Society of Montreal, The story goes that Muir was out for a walk near his house in Leslieville with his friend George Leslie, with the deadline of the poetry contest looming. A maple leaf became lodged in Leslie's coat sleeve, whereupon he suggested the idea that Muir's poem should be based on the maple leaf, the symbol of Canada. There, Muir! There's your text! The maple leaf is the emblem of Canada! Build your text on that! Muir composed the text quickly and sent the poem off to Montreal within hours. Muir eventually won second prize in the contest and decided to publish the poem at the urging of his friends. He composed the music for the song himself, after no suitable melody could be found. He published the song at his own expense, but failed to secure copyright and received no royalties from the song after it was republished by the company of Abraham and Samuel Nordheimer. In all, Muir realized proceeds of only $4 after an initial outlay of 30 So why wasn't the song popular with French-Canadian audiences? Muir's lyrics have a decidedly pro-British bent to them. Early versions of the poem celebrate Canada as a place where the thistle, shamrock, and rose entwine, and exclude the fleur-de-lis. Other lyrics in the song celebrate British military victories in Canada and refer to General Wolfe as a dauntless hero. In later versions of the poem, 
The first verse was rendered as in days of yore the hero wolf Britain's glory did maintain. Due to its pro-English Canadian outlook, not to mention celebration of Wolfe's conquest of Quebec at the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, the song alienated many French Canadians. In fact, no French translation of the poem has been found to exist. A poem by Octave Crémazie, Salut au ma belle patrie, was paired with Muir's melody in a 1914 publication, Choix de Chanson. Furthermore, later versions of the poem sought to be more inclusive, where the word lily was inserted to read lily, thistle, shamrock, and rose entwine. Well, let's take a listen to the piece then. Here's a performance of The Maple Leaf Forever by the Kilties. It's interesting, that track was almost entirely instrumental, except for a choir singing the chorus every now and then. Yes, I think it works brilliantly well as an instrumental piece and as a march. It also helped us dodge some of the more overtly pro-British sentiments in the text, even if they did manage to stick God Save the Queen in at the end. The other thing I like about this performance is that some of the words of the chorus seem almost unintelligible. 
It seems to lend a joyous and raucous quality to the performance. Who were the Kilties? The Belleville Kilties Band was organized in Toronto in 1902 to assume some of the touring commitments that the 48th Highlanders Band could not fulfill. The Kilties were one of the first Canadian bands to gain international recognition and went on 16 world tours between 1904 and 1930. The group featured up to 40 to 50 members at its peak, half of whom still belonged to the 48th Highlanders Band. The band was also supplemented by dancers and singers and performed in parks during the summer months and on the vaudeville circuit during the winter. Notable performances of the band included the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904 and two command performances for Edward VII in 1904 and 1905. One of its members, David Ferguson, also recorded pipe music solos for the Berliner Record Company. On the subject of recording, the labels of the Kilties records all feature a delightful tartan pattern. The band ceased being a professional group in 1911 and ultimately disbanded in 1933. Next up, Nancy and Joseph discuss Chanson de Sauveg, or Solveig's song, as performed by Sarah Fisher. Now, don't let the somber nature of this song fool you. Solveig's song comes from one of the most entertaining orchestral suites based on incidental music to one of the most lively and entertaining plays ever produced in the 19th century. Really? Could you give us a brief explanation of both the play and the music? Absolutely. I think it'll help provide a bit of context for the music we'll hear. Solveig's song is most usually heard as the last movement in the composer Edvard Grieg's Piergunt Suite No. 2. Grieg is Norway's best-known composer. He was requested by Henrik Ibsen, the author of the original play, to compose incidental music to accompany the play's production. Incidental music for a play is similar to how we might think of how a film score accompanies a movie. You know, it adds atmosphere, enhances the action of the plot. In a play, incidental music might even serve to accompany scene changes and include such musical pieces as an overture or musical interlude. Grieg wrote the incidental music and created two orchestral suites from it. It is in the form of the orchestral suites that the music is most well known and heard. In fact, it's from Grieg's incidental music that we get music like the famous Morning Mood, or in the hall of the mountain king. The variety of music that you hear in these suites gives you an indication of the fantastic nature and drama of the play Per Gunt. It was originally a dramatic poem converted into a play and follows the narrative and adventures of the title character as we follow him through the Norwegian mountains through to North Africa and back again. Solveig is a character in the play and is one of the women with whom Per falls in love they first meet at a wedding in Act One, where Pierre kidnaps the bride of another man. Solvig finds him again at his cabin in Act Three and resolves to live with him. However, Pierre leaves on other adventures and business schemes, one involving the being the emperor of a madhouse in Cairo, only to return to find Solvig patiently waiting for him in Act Five. One can interpret the music being somewhat of sorrow and resignation but also of the constancy of Solveig's love. She sings the following words. The winter may go, and the spring disappear. Next summer, too, may fade in the whole long year. But you will be returning, in truth I know, 
and I will wait for you as I promised long ago. May God guide and keep you wherever you may go, upon you his blessing and mercy bestow. And here I will await you till you are here, and if you are in heaven, I'll meet you there. Let's now hear Sarah Fisher sing Chanson de Solveig in a French translation of the words. We've talked about the play and incidental music, but we haven't said anything about Sarah Fisher. Who was she? 
Sarah Fisher was a prominent soprano, teacher, and administrator who was celebrated in Canada, England, and France in the first half of the 20th century. She was celebrated for her roles and singing before returning to Canada to teach and be an advocate for emerging Canadian artists. She was born in Paris in 1896, but immigrated to Montreal with her mother in 1912 to join her father. He had come some time earlier. Fisher worked as a telephone operator in Montreal, but studied voice and music with Jacques Goulet and Céline Marguier, and eventually won the Strathcona Scholarship, which gave her a three-year scholarship to the Royal College of Music in London in 1917. Her departure to London was delayed because of World War I, and she didn't go until 1919. In the interim, Fisher made her stage debut in 1918 in Montreal as Michaela from Carmen, followed by other roles and performances in Montreal and Quebec City. Was the recording we just heard made at this time as well? It was. Fisher traveled to New York in 1919 and recorded eight pieces for Pate Records on four double-sided records. These pieces also included arias from Carmen and Lacme, roles with which she'd be associated throughout her performing career. What happened after she arrived in London? In London, she became Emma Albany's protégé and became a member of the British National Opera Company in 1922, and sang the following roles at Covent Garden. Evra from Die Meistersinger by Wagner, Pamina from The Magic Flute by Mozart, The Countess in The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart, and Marguerite in Faust by Gounod. Fischer also participated in two notable events in the history of opera. She took part in the first opera broadcast from Covent Garden, singing the role of Pamina in 1923, and in 1934 sang in the BBC's first opera telecast in excerpts from Bizet's Carmen, singing the title role. Fischer also performed in Paris, and her first performance with the Opéra Comique took place in 1925 when she sang the role of Mélissande in Debussy's Pelia et Mélissande. When did Miss Fischer return to Canada? She performed back in Montreal at various events through the 1930s, but settled permanently in Canada in 1940 after the breakout of World War II and due to her father's illness. She opened a studio and, starting in 1941, presented the first of the Sarah Fisher concerts for the benefit of Canadian artists, which became an annual series of four concerts that continued until her death in 1975. In the course of the 175 concerts, many young Canadians received their debuts, these included such Canadian artists as Violet Archer, Maureen Forrester, André Prévost, and Robert Silverman. Fisher gave her final concert in 1942 and devoted the rest of her life to teaching and musical organizations. How many recordings did Sarah Fisher make over the course of her lifetime? Not a lot. Fisher made the aforementioned recordings on the Pathé label and recorded four Elizabethan love songs with the string quartet for HMV in the 1920s. This is when she was in England. These recordings can also be found on the virtual gramophone. She recorded six more songs in London in 1939, and these songs, along with the Pathé and HMV recordings, were reissued on a private LP in 1967. She is also included in the Great Voices of Canada series released by Analecta. Finally, Library and Archives Canada has a collection of Sarah Fisher's personal documents, which were donated by Miss Fisher herself.
Sounds Like History is an exploration of the Virtual Gramophone Collection and was produced by Canada's History Society in collaboration with Library and Archives Canada. Learn more at canadashistory.ca. Thank you.